0: Good morning. Today is July 19th, 2020. We're in the seventh Sunday after Pentecost, or after Trinity Sunday. The title of our sermon today is God Our Father. It's based on Romans 8, 12 through 17. I'd like to begin by considering two pictures, one an etching and the other a painting. They are both by the same artist. And they are both of the same subject but there is a world of difference between the two. The artist is Rembrandt, and the subject is The Return of the Prodigal Son. In 1636, Rembrandt created a small etching of this scene. Then, 32 years later, he returned to the subject and painted a larger masterpiece, The Return of the Prodigal Son. When you contrast these two studies, one an etching and the other a painting, you notice the world of difference between the two. In the etching, Rembrandt focuses upon action. The scene is filled with movement. People are descending a staircase. Some are watching their steps. One looks to the side, another looks downward, but all are rushing to join the father, who has rushed out before them, to lean over and embrace his son. The father himself is moving forward. Rembrandt catches him in mid-stride as he rushes to to reach out and grasp his son. In the painting, however, the picture is different. Here, Rembrandt creates a sense of stillness. He focuses on presence rather than action. No one is moving. Everyone is stationary. And all of the people, whether standing or sitting, are gazing on the one central experience that is, the father leaning over his son, the son leaning into his father. These two people locked in an eternal brace. It is as if time has stopped and one sees that moment, that eternal moment, when the father acknowledges, claims, and receives and blesses, yes, loves his son. This is a moment of sonship of being claimed as somebody's child, and Rembrandt sought to capture that moment and freeze it upon your memory. I begin with that image because in our reading from Romans this morning, Paul talks about something similar. Last week, Paul revealed to us Christ, our Deliverer. In his words in Romans, said, Who will save me from this wretched struggle of sin? Now, in Romans 8, he focuses our eyes upon God, our Father. Rescued by Christ from the power of sin, we are brought into the kingdom of God, where we live by the Spirit as children of God. We are children of God. That's the point Paul wants to communicate to the church at Rome and to to us today. In Christ, God claims you as his son. God is our Father, and we are his children. But what does it mean to be claimed as God's Son? To answer that question, Paul creates a contrast. The contrast between slaves and sons. Paul writes, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Notice how Paul turns our attention to a moment of prayer. He asks the church to stop and consider what happens when we pray. Our words are suspended in midair. Our Father. And Paul wants us to hear them. Paul freezes that moment and asks us to consider what it means to be God's son. If you look closely at Rembrandt's praying painting, you can see what this looks like. Rembrandt places the son's head on his father's bosom, and the father uses his hands to draw the son closer to himself. What is strange, however, is that the son looks less like a son and more like a slave. His head is shaven, as if he were a prisoner. His eyes are closed, as if he were exhausted. He brings all of his slavery there before his father. The father reaches down to claim this slave as his son. He hovers over him in love. He places his hands upon his body and draws him to himself. The child brings slavery to his father, but the father brings sonship to the child. This child is no longer a slave, but a son, not a prisoner of sin and death, but a child of God. Henry Newman, a priest and devotional writer, once told about a time when he shared this picture with others. For him, the son looked like a prisoner, like the victim of a concentration camp with his head shaven. A woman, however, offered a different view. She looked closely at the painting and told him what she saw. It was not the head of a prisoner, but that of a newborn child. With that comment, she captured the mystery of this moment. The one who has been a slave to his passions is made by the love of his father into a son. This is what the Apostle Paul is celebrating in our letter from Romans. By nature, our sinful passions consume us. Take us far from the kingdom of God, and if we live according to the flesh, we will die. Exiled, imprisoned, thrust far from God's kingdom. God, whoever, has brought us to life in the death of his Son. God the Father sent his Son, Jesus Christ, out of love for his people. In dying, Jesus took upon himself the exile of our sin. And in rising to life, Jesus brings us into the kingdom of his Father. Today in Jesus, we bring our slavery before God. We confess the ways that we have been less than God's children, that we have been slaves to our own sinful desires. The ways we have been enslaved to the experiences and rule of this world. God, however, comes to us in Jesus. He places his hands upon us and draws us near to his heart in love. Today, you are once again claimed by God to be one of his children. As Paul writes, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. The Spirit cries out with your spirit, Abba, Father. The Church has a way of reminding us of this moment. It's hidden away in our hymnals, buried deep within the minor details of liturgical action, but it is there nonetheless. I'd like you to think about that for two moments in life, captured in the liturgy. The moment of baptism and the moment of dying. In the service of baptism and the commendation of the dying, the pastor does one simple thing. He places his hands on the person, whether that person is being baptized or dying, and he asks everyone who is gathered around that person to pray the Lord's Prayer. If you were baptized as an infant, you couldn't say the Lord's Prayer, but the congregation said it for you. If you are lying there, unconscious and about to die, you cannot say the Lord's Prayer, but again the pastor and the church say it for you. Why? Because God in this moment is coming and claiming you as his child. In baptism as you were brought into the kingdom, the church offers you the Lord's Prayer. This is your prayer, your language, to use to speak to your God, your Father. And as you depart this world in the moment of death, the church gathers again to testify that you are God's. These are your words. God has given them to you as his child. Because you are in Christ, you can call God your Father, and nothing, not even death, can take that away from you. Later in the service, we will pray the Lord's Prayer. And I'd like you to think about that moment. This is not just a repetition of a prayer that we say every Sunday, something to say without paying really a lot of attention to it. This is the working of the Spirit, God's Spirit. Even now in our midst, God is reaching out and placing his hands upon you, drawing you close to his bosom. And the Holy Spirit is testifying with our spirit, that we are children of God. From baptism to the grave and every moment in between, we cry out, Abba, Father, and rejoice that we are children of God. When Jesus taught us to pray to God, our Father, he also taught us to pray, Thy kingdom come. Paul's words in our text remind us of this petition as he writes, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. That's in Romans 8, 16-17. Heirs of God, these words are necessary, so necessary in our world today. Daily we are bombarded by messages that try to take God's kingdom from us. Death, coronavirus numbers, violence, protest. Open any magazine and take a moment to stop and look at the pages. Read any email newsletter and you'll find the same thing. Consider advertisements. The pictures that draw you away from the things of God to the things of this world. Hair care products and cellular phones fine clothing and fine food vacation getaways and luxury cars the way that advertisements would seek to draw you into them for comfort from the problems in the world the riches of this world are set on display before you as you glance through the pages or the commercials on television or radio the life you have seems less significant than the life you could the life you could have With hard work, a bit of luck, a trip to the casino, or a shrewd investment in the stock market, you will be able to leave your little life behind, filled with its problems and its pain and suffering, and live in the luxury of this world. Words of God to his people, to not covet the things of others, to love one's spouse and one's children, to be content with the calling into which you have been called, to rise and labor for the good, of others and to draw near to one another in the household of god these words this life this church that god has made seems so outdated it pales in comparison to the life that is promised us as we turn another page or listen to another program on the television america becomes the promised land the land where we can indulge our desires and make something of ourselves get ahead in this world, and if we keep a little bit of religion in our back pocket, trust that we will be blessed in the world to come. Being a child of God, however, means something other than accomplishing the American dream. Consider a moment in the history of Israel, where Moses stood there before God on the mountain. Israel had sinned against God, roused God's anger, and God had threatened to destroy his people, but Moses interceded for them, and God listened to Moses. God, however, offered, offers Moses a strange vision of life for the people of Israel. God says that they can have the promised land and the vineyards, the olive groves, the fields for barley and wheat, the pastures for cattle and sheep, the cities in the open spaces, all of the land flowing with milk and honey. They can have it, all of it. They just will have it without him. God will not go with them into the promised land. Moses, however, puts the magazine aside. He is not tempted by the glossy pictures, the commercials, the advertisements. He knows that without God, they have absolutely nothing. What good is it to gain the world, the whole world, and lose your soul? So Moses comes before God with nothing to offer. He simply relies on God's mercy and prays, If your presence does not go with us, do not bring us up from here. Exodus 33, 15 Moses will not have the kingdom without the presence of God. And if you listen to Paul's words, notice how he focuses upon our relationship to God rather than the things in this world. We are heirs, he said, heirs of God, not just heirs of a kingdom. We are heirs of God. God himself has promised to go with us. He has called us together as his people and sent us forth to live in this land. Our lives will look different than those of the people around us. We will bless and not curse. We will be content in the calling into which God has called us. We will rise and labor for the good of others and draw near to one another in the household of God, his church. Such lifestyles will not indulge in all the pleasures that America has to offer. Such people will not climb the corporate ladder, doing everything they can to get ahead. No, we will be content with what God gives us, knowing that in his kingdom, his presence is enough. If you look at Rembrandt's painting of the prodigal son, you will notice that he has frozen the story just at the right moment before the son receives all of the tangible gifts from his father. The son does not have a robe placed over his shoulders. He does not have his father's ring on his finger. He does not have good shoes on his feet. Instead, one foot is bare worn from sufferings in this world but what the son does have is his father in the presence of his father he is led to trust that he shall not want anything else so too, our Lord has called us to live as his people in faith when Jesus spoke to his disciples he encouraged them to take up their cross and follow him life in this world would not be easy It will be filled with the best that this world has to offer, but it will be filled with God's love. His heavenly Father's work will continue after he rises and ascends into heaven and we have the privilege of being called into God's mission. We are the children of God at work in our Father's kingdom, bringing salvation to the ends of the earth. Notice how Paul closes this section of the text. He writes, "We are children of God, and if children then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with him." Romans eight sixteen and seventeen. Paul calls to remind Paul calls to mind the suffering of Christ. We follow his way in this world, suffering with Christ, knowing that ultimately we will be joined to him in glory at the revelation of God's kingdom. We are heirs with Christ, children of God. You know, I mentioned earlier that 32 years had passed between the first and the last times Rembrandt worked with the prodigal son. Much happened in Rembrandt's life during those times, those years. He lost his wife. He lost his wealth. Three of his four children were lost as well and his reputation. He then lost his last and only surviving son. In the world you will have tribulation, our Lord says. But take heart, I have overcome the world. John sixteen thirty three. After losing all that our world would say gives us life, meaning, Rembrandt chose to focus upon the one thing that Jesus gives that this world cannot take away the spirit of adoption. God the Father claims you as his child. Jesus makes us children of Heavenly Father. We bring our slavery to sin before God and in Jesus we are forgiven. Our fears are silenced and our future is secure. We are made children of God. Children and heirs, heirs of a new world and a new kingdom to be revealed when Jesus returns, but more importantly, heirs of God himself. The Apostle Paul paints the picture for you this morning in his letter to the Romans. God the Father claims all of you as his children. His love, He loves you, forgives you, embraces you, and claims you as his people because of the life, death, and resurrection of his Son. Amen.